Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, I think we're recording. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Michael McMullen joins me again. And like any self-respecting podcast, we're going to start with an apology uh, because last week it was all going quite well, I thought. We, you know, we had a chat about the qualifiers and actually the sound quality wasn't bad, but I've got this new microphone and it turns out it's really sensitive. In fact, I think it's the one Freddie Murphy used at uh, Live Aid. That's how sensitive it is. Because as I was sort of innocently rustling through the Crucible Almanac, just looking stuff up. It sounded horrible. Neil Folds actually asked me why I was moving a fridge in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> so apologies for that. I will try this week to keep it under control. But um, you know, by, by the end of the lockdown, we'll have this. We'll have this done. This, this the sound quality thing. I was going to say there was so much Mike Russell in it. It was almost a billiards podcast. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Even for this podcast, that's a niche reference. Yeah, well, Mike, this is niche. Mike Russell. I mean, billiards that's, is the home of niche. <laughs> Very good. Anyway, our main topic today is going to be uh, the, this Crucible Classic series is running on the BBC. They made a terrible start with it. They showed the, the, the worst quality snooker in the first one, Tony Knowles, Steve Davis, which was not a classic. It was a huge story and a massive shock, but the match was terrible. It just was. And uh, that wasn't the best start, but it's got better and better as it's gone on. But we, as we said last week, and we've had a few emails on this, are going to choose matches from the World Championship that are not part of that series and also not finals. So three matches each that we would like to see again from the World Championship. It's coming up later. First up, we've had a couple of emails that I'm going to read. And the first one is a very interesting one. It's from Matilda from Italy. We often talk about the state of the game at the grassroots. Of course, we're talking about... Britain and Ireland, because that's where we live. We kind of forget, actually, we've got it good compared to a lot of countries who are, who are much newer to the sport. So I'm going to read. Uh, I've slightly edited this just for length, but I'm going to read. It's, there's plenty here. There's plenty here. Okay. My name is Matilda. I'm a 20-year-old snooker fan from Italy. First of all, I would like to say thank you to both of you for the continued entertainment in these tough times. Snooker's kept me sane since I discovered it during the 2016 UK Championship. I think I'd be feeling withdrawal symptoms. I wanted to write to share some of my fondest memories of this great game 
and to shed some light onto the snooker scene in, in my country. Naturally, as I've only been following snooker for a few years, I haven't collected the same companion of great memories as the two of you. I so desperately wish I could have known about it from a much younger age. Believe me, believe me Matilda, 20 is plenty young enough, <laughs> honestly. Well, uh, I, I was going to say, it's remarkable to hear someone saying that snooker is keeping her sane. It has the opposite effect on <laughs> most people. Give it time. Right. Yeah. Anyway, we continue. Snooker is the great unknown among Q sports in Italy. The younger generations will use the term billiards to refer to Q sports in general, but more specifically to pool. What is known as billiards in the UK is referred to as carom. We have our own specialities such as goraziana and five pins, which are played on carom tables, but with the addition of small pins placed in a cross shape at the centre of the table. There are two balls on the table, a white and a yellow, which serve as cue balls for either player, and points are scored by knocking the pins down, using the other player's ball or by performing a carom. It seems easy, but the challenge of knocking down the pins while also leaving both balls in good positions for the next shot is anything but. Just to break in here, Matilda, I know about this game because, because years ago, Clive Everton had to go to Eurosport in Paris to commentate on, he was just told it was a billiards program. Now, Clive had a great billiards career. He thought, okay, no problem. You know, I know all about that. Got there. It turned out to be Italian five-pin billiards, which he'd never heard of. And well, he had Phil a, was meant to do that. Phil, Phil was meant to do it. And quite wisely, perhaps, he pulled out of it at the last minute. Now, for <laughs> Phil to turn down any work at all is, is quite something. But I know he was meant to do it. Well, Clive had a, a sort of rudimentary run through of the rules with someone and, and, and got on with it like the pro he is. Anyway, we continue. Most people who play these games don't really know about snooker. When my dad and I first got into the game, we wanted to find a place to play. We found a dingy underground club in our city with eight pool tables and four carom tables. Out in the back behind several doors and dark corridors, there was a lone snooker table that mustn't have seen more than a couple of frames played on it before the club was shut down. There are proper snooker clubs around the country, usually passion projects that are not economically sustainable. The closest one to us is 80 kilometres away or roughly the same distance from London to Basingstoke. For the past two years, we've been making the drive every weekend to get to play for a few hours. If anyone wants to compete nationally, they'll have to go up north. I've been in three national competitions outside my region, but the highest level of competition is pretty inaccessible for average players like me. And then in brackets, I have a 40 break. Well, if you've not been playing long, that's actually really good, Matilda. Um, she, conti- she continues, it's very draining to pay for three, four-hour train rides either way, find a hotel to sleep in just to play in another rundown club with two or three tables at most and get battered 3-0 by national-level pool players who make 60s and 70s with ease but don't know what a safety shot looks like. But I keep doing it because I truly and sincerely love the game. Sometimes I resent other players for not sharing the same passion and playing with an attitude of just hitting a few balls around but there are exceptions to the rule. And she talks about uh, some of the leading players in Italy. She also says, um, inevitably, and this seems to happen in every country, there are a few internecine squabbles going on as well. Never. Um, I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But she yeah. said, um, clubs and tables in the country are so few and far between that the moment you make one your regular stomping ground, you're in effect pledging allegiance to one club. Club owners and managers all know one another, and there's some tension between them. It's very difficult to envisage how this country's fledgling snooker scene could ever become unified and move to a more legitimate level if the, if the big names that uh, she mentioned earlier on, uh, who ought to represent the sport for everyone in the country, still get lost in petty squabbles over who's from where. Absolutely right. She did. Uh, she said she went to the European Masters. That's the first live snooker she saw until the final when Neil Robertson destroyed Zhou Yu Long. He said, uh, it's the only professional match I've attended and it's my, probably my fondest memory, but more so than the match, I remember the exhibition that was played to fill the time after. It was played between Neil and Andreas Plona, one of the top Austrian players. And uh, Neil, Neil uh, lost the opening frame. Well, it seemed he was playing with someone else's cue anyway. 
to conclude, she says, there's something powerful and transformative about snooker. I could not imagine a life without it going forward. It's my hope that in years to come, more players from the unheralded countries like Italy can make waves in the amateur and professional circuits. I hope to contribute to the development of a strong grassroots snooker movement in my country that will one day produce a top player who will fly the trickle flag on television. I hope as well we can manage to break down the gender barriers that surround Q Sports and paint an image of a masculine environment that is discouraging and off-putting for young girls and women like me. In these times of stillness, we tend to think back on our fondest memories, but maybe it's also time to start making plans for the future. So a great email that, and it's nice to hear, it's nice to hear firstly that snooker is even a thing on it, in Italy. Obviously, it's on Eurosport there. It's at the moment quite low-key, it sounds, but at least there are places to play. And what an effort she's making there, you know, travelling all that way just to play. Yeah, remarkable, incredible email that. And I only remember ever meeting an Italian at a tournament once. It was actually at the World Final a few years ago. And then I noticed him during play in the final. He was holding up his iPad and recording the whole match. <laughs> it's something I've never seen before or since. And the referee, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Brendan Moore. And, you know, hard luck on the Italian if it was, because Brendan doesn't tolerate any nonsense. Mm. He made it very clear once he saw what was going on that this was not an acceptable thing to do. So that, that's the only time I've ever met an Italian at a tournament. And Italy actually has, a, a, again, this is niche, but it's a unique place in the game's history because, as you know, and as most of our listeners will know, the only snooker player ever to win Sports Personality of the Year in the UK was Steve Davis in 1988. But he was presented mm. with the trophy in Milan, I think, because yeah. he was playing a match that night against Terry Griffiths in the old uh, Norwich Union European Grand Prix, and they cut over to him being presented with it. And I'm fairly sure that was in Milan. So there is a bit of an Italian connection with the game in that sense, from way back. But you think, I mean, what a big country Italy is, what a big sporting country it is. Uh, it would be fantastic if, if snooker was to really take off there. And, you know, if there are a few more people like uh, our listener there uh, following the game, then it shouldn't be too long in happening. That's what you need, isn't it? You need enthusiasts. Thank you, Matilda. We've had another email I want to read out. This is from the UK. It's James Clark. He's a snooker fan, journalism graduate, works in digital marketing. Now, there's a word of warning here. He mentions me in a complimentary way, and, and people will say, "Oh, that's the only reason you're reading it out." But actually, well, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, but he's <laughs> he's making some points about this big WST relaunch. So it was World Snooker; they relaunched as WST with the tagline "The future is now." Now they've been a bit unlucky actually, because of course everything stopped, so they're having to fall back on what everyone else is doing, which is nostalgia stuff, because there's no snooker going on. There's that virtual thing going on as well. But anyway, again, I've slightly edited this for length, but I will read his email. He says, back in January, Will Snooker announced their rebrand to run alongside the start of the 2020 Masters. We saw a bigger arena, an enhanced set, and a new 2020-friendly logo. Big things were promised, but but the much-needed WST rebrand seems to have stuttered out of the starting blocks. Snooker has a serious catch-up job on their hands to move the sport into the current era, with their online digital presence failing in comparison to a number of top UK sports. But how do they do this? Naturally, the answer to this is communication, and the UK lockdown may be the perfect opportunity to push forward. So where do they start? First and foremost, the website needs immediate attention. In February, WST released their first ever mobile app, but rather than than experimenting with a new design, they simply rehashed the dated template, which has been used for donkey's years. Other sports, on the other hand, have regularly updated apps, which have been around for a number of years. It makes sport more accessible, puts the action in the hands of, a, of the people who are willing to invest time into it. The website needs to capture the, the imagination of snooker fans across the world with new imaginative content, not just rehash top 10 shots or top 10 break builder articles. They have quite literally been done to death. 
Snooker has a host of TV personalities and writers at their disposal, and this is where it's coming, where I get mentioned, uh, to help market the sport and should be utilising them accordingly. For instance, Andy Goldstein hosts one of the most successful regular sporting radio shows on TalkSport, and Dave Hendon has the ability to capture fans' imagination with a unique, high-quality writing style. Thank you very much, James. He says, I'm no cricket fan by any means. However, a quick glance at the ECB site and you are immediately greeted by a website worthy of a top sporting institution. There's an evident lack of dodgy advertising placements and enough content for fans to interact with, including videos from the game's top stars. Visit the World Snooker Tour website and I'm faced with some poorly placed adverts, an outdated tournament countdown ticket for the already passed tour championship and another plug for the Snooker 19 video game. An issue WST currently needs to address is how they're actually going to entice new fans. UK clubs are closing down at an alarming rate and young junior talent isn't looking too promising either. More and more, the Asian domination predicted a decade ago seemed more like than ever, but almost due to a lack of competition. We need fans picking up the sport at a young age. The only way to do this is by communicating with new audiences in, in environments both familiar and appealing. We need kids in school sharing content with their mates and six by three pool tables back at the top of Christmas shopping lists. People are spending more time on social media than ever and giving the website and social content strategies a full facelift may actually see more people tune in once Snooker is back on the telly. It's an opportunity WSD can't really afford to miss, especially if matches are played behind closed doors to a potentially larger audience. It's a bit more, there's a bit more, but I think we get the gist. Yeah. <laughs> I think we get the gist that James is not fully on board. I was thinking about this. I'm, I made a few bullet points. So I'm just going to kind of uh, spitball here for a couple of minutes. He mentions the app there. And one good thing about the app, one really good thing actually, is you can now uh, look at the frame scores in matches with breaks, which you never had before. You used to have to sort of go through a workaround on snooker.org. Uh, so that's actually a really good thing. The rest of it, I have to say, I don't think is anything that special, but it is early doors yet, so maybe give them a chance. Uh, the website, look, I know all the people who work on the website and indeed on the media team. They're all friends of mine. I'm not going to slag them off. They really care about snooker. They work really hard, particularly at tournaments. You know, you sit next to the tournaments, they never stop. And, of course, they have to put up with a lot of criticism, whether it's warranted or not. However, the website is very hard to navigate. If you know, If something drops off that front page, it's very hard to find it. The pop-ups... The adverts are annoying, but of course they also have to pay for it, I guess, because it's a difficult thing commercially to make websites pay. I think some of the stuff they do is interesting. Actually, I don't mind countdowns and features like that. They had a very good story up this week about Olivia Martil working in the Belgian Health Service yeah, at, the, at the Sharp End. You know, a very inspiring story. Actually, one of the one of the game's leading referees doing an important job. And of course, if they were going to bring people in from the outside, they have to pay them, and money is always going to be an issue. Um, I actually. Like their social media output, they put a lot of work into it. But having said that, I'm probably not the demographic for it. James clearly is a younger man. It's not working for him. Uh, they have Baywatch, which actually is popular online, their magazine show, although it's, it's become a bit irregular, I think, because the people who work on it have to do everything else as well at tournaments. There is a slight issue always with, with the governing body, and this, I think, is true of all governing bodies, of a sort of them and us culture. And I, I know this myself because I used to be, many years ago, over 20 years ago, the WPBSA press officer. And there was one tournament where I was having a drink in the bar at an event with some journalists and a member of the then WPBSA board came over and told me I shouldn't be drinking with the media. Now I was the press officer, so I kind of saw it as my job to to sort of you know chat with the press. But so that's kind of what the attitude was then. Thankfully, it's a lot better now. Uh, but I think this whole argument basically boils down to a single question, WST. Is it their job to promote snooker or is it their job to promote their own stuff? Now, you might think that's the same thing, but I'm not absolutely sure there is. As I've been mentioned, I'll mention myself again. This is the 104th episode of this podcast. We've been going five years. They haven't once publicised any of them. Now, you might say, well, why should they? 
got nothing to do with them. It's not their thing. You could also say, well, why shouldn't they? You know, it's promoted their players, their events, and is listened to by a lot of snooker fans. I can guarantee one thing. If the BBC did a snooker podcast, they'd be tweeting the hell out of it all day long, WST. Seems to me, here's an analogy, a warning, an analogy is coming up, okay? It's like there's a tent, and you've got to be in the tent, and anything not happening in the tent doesn't matter. The answer to that, make the tent bigger. So there's two great websites, okay, independent of the governing body, QTracker and snooker.org. Absolutely invaluable for snooker fans, all the info they have there, and they run entirely by snooker fans who give a lot of their own time to it. Now, ideally, the governing body should be the source of information. They don't have anything like this range of info. So why not actually support these sites, if necessary, with money to keep them going? Because one day, the people running them could have just had enough of it. It would massively benefit snooker in the long run. There are loads of people doing things for the sport as well outside of that who I'm sure would appreciate some sort of support and maybe some more thinking outside the box would also help. The other side of that, though, the problem for WST is that any governing body like a government, they're always there essentially to be shot at, whether fairly or not. And when they do try to do different things, they're often pilloried. Now, we go back to the World Grand Prix. I was in Cheltenham, and they decided to use these drawings of players instead of photos for all their sort of publicity and social media. Now, some of these drawings were really good and some were less good. And, of course, everyone online fixated on the less good ones and effectively bullied them into taking them off. They didn't use them halfway through the event. So having thought outside the box, the sort of mob descended. And it's almost like they might see it, you, you sort of can't win. But it goes back to the central question I asked, is it their job to promote snooker or to promote their own stuff? If it's just the latter, then there's always going to be that kind of smallness. And perhaps that's what James is talking about. It's cautious because it's corporate, it's sanitised. Maybe it does have to be that way. Maybe there's another way to make that tent that I mentioned earlier on bigger, gain new fans, attract a new generation of spectators. We're all trying to do our best for snooker. We all want to see it do well. And I think we could all agree, despite its success on TV, it could be doing better. That's my two cents on it. Yeah, it was more than two cents, Dave. That was a couple hundred dollars there. <laughs> um, well, clearly the answer to everything is to bring back Snooker Radio, of course. I mean, well, yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, well, of course, that's something you were involved in that lasted four days. It was not given a chance. Well, look, who knows? Maybe in the future that will come back. The, the one thing I would say about all that, and, you know, you have a better understanding. You say you're not the demographic, but you're far more tuned into that whole social media world than I am. So I'm even less qualified to comment on it. What I would say is there's a lot of catch up to do because Snooker was doing nothing for so mm. long in the previous administrations. It was so slow to catch up to, you know, the Internet, as it was known then. Nobody ever even says that word anymore. It's always <laughs> online or the net or the web or whatever. Um, so there is an element of playing catch up there. But again, you know, I'm mates with all those guys as well. Um, Roddy and Sam and Ivan and all the rest of them. And it, it's going to take time for these things, but at least they're trying something which for a long time, it was just being ignored. The world was changing. It was going online. It was going digital. And Snooker was ignoring it. At least that certainly isn't happening now. And we'll see how it develops over the next few years. Absolutely. I agree with that. Maybe to distill what I've just said, the issue is not the personnel. They all work really hard and they all love Snooker. They're Snooker fans as well as working in it. The problem, or not the problem, but the issue for me is what, what is actually the role of the governing body? Is it to promote snooker full stop everywhere it moves or is it just to concentrate on what they're doing their tournaments if it is that it seems to me a little bit narrow but anyway we spent a long time talking about these things so let's actually move on to the actual topic of the podcast which is of course matches at the crucible we would like to see again now i've had some emails a couple uh, kind of go together um and i'll just call them up here on my 
smartphone. You see, this is how engaged we are with the modern see, I world. I told you you were more clued in than I am. <laughs> Firstly, well, I had one from Jack Taylor, actually. Not he, he, he enjoyed last week's chat about qualifiers, and he said he was there for Steve Davis's last ever match when he lost to uh, Fergal. And uh, he's enclosed a picture, which obviously you can't see on the podcast, of him with Steve. What I would say about this, Jack, you would not know that Steve had lost. He looks fine, considering his career is over. Maybe he was already looking forward to, to Glastonbury. Anyway, um, yeah, so Ben Thomas, he's, he's emailed, he says, enjoying the series. He's listed a load of matches he'd like to see again. There's matches like the Fred Davis-Perry Mann semi-final, 78, Griffiths v Higgins, 79, Fred Davis-Bill Werbenet, 1984, just to see Fred's last appearance at the Crucible because he was 70. But he says it's never going to happen. BBC were always just going to repeat the original series. Eurosport also never show anything older than about three years ago, even though they have been covering World Snooker since 2000. And on a similar theme, Scott McCarter, he says, I personally think it's a bit lazy of the BBC to throw out the classic matches again. I'm nothing against the matches themselves. I think the BBC could have done better. He talks about the Higgins-Stevens match, 2001, um, 98 as well, the finals, semi-finals. Um, I think Hazel Irvin does a great job, but the BBC have left a lot to be desired. Well, of course, the problem is, and this is just a fact, a lot of these matches, certainly the ones in the first email there from the 70s and 80s, just don't exist anymore because yeah, they the were literally, the wipes, yeah. Exactly, because they were literally recorded on tape. And you can imagine hour upon hour. I mean, there wouldn't have been much of that shown at the time, that Fred Davis, Bill Werbenet match. But the idea that someone in 1984 is going to say, we must keep that because 30 years from now, people want to see it again. It would have just been destroyed because they wouldn't physically have the space to keep, considering the amount of sport the BBC did there, not just snooker, to keep everything. It just wouldn't have made sense. Um, so unfortunately, unless someone recorded it on, on video, and there are these sort of videos knocking around, Roger Lee, the game's leading his story, and his whole house seems to be full of them. So they do exist sort of, you know, on the underground market, as it were, but the BBC wouldn't have them. So that's why... They've um, relied on on the sort of old favourites. And also, in slight defence of this Crucible Classic series, it is a repeat from four years ago. But in the current climate, it's not so straightforward to make new programmes. No, absolutely. Um, and some of those matches, I mean, you know, every single one of them, you know, the likes of us know everything that happened, basically. But I'm actually looking forward, I have to say, to seeing the 85 final again, because I've not seen that for about 20 years. And, OK, look, we know about the final frame. We've seen that many times. But we don't know actually that much about the rest hmm. of the match. And, I mean, Dennis coming back from 9-1 on the Saturday night, getting back to 9-7, he played really, really well. So things like that, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, actually, when they get round to doing that one. And I think you've got to pick the standout matches. You know, you've got to pick the games that uh, people really want to see that are woven into the, to the game's history and leave it to the likes of us, I suppose, to talk about the slightly more obscure stuff as, as we're going to do eventually. Slightly more obscure. Well, just before we get on to that, so Rory Gavin has picked out a match he'd like to see. Uh, the first Crucible match he watched from start to finish, 2016 first round, Stuart Bingham, Ali Carter, of course, Bingham, defending oh, yeah. champion, and, and what a terrible draw to get Ali Carter in the first round. He says, it's a first round match, I often think it goes unnoticed, but he had a great standard throughout, with centuries from both final frames, one of the tensest sporting moments I've witnessed, and also had me hooked on the sport ever since. Also, it, made, it contributed to the ever-present Crucible curse. So that's another one, more recent one, but what we're going to do, so these are the rules of the game. We're going to... Uh, pick three matches each. They can't be part of this series on the BBC and they can't be finals, but they are from the World Championship over the years. I've done a lot of talking, so why don't you go first? Yeah, well, I flagged up one of these last week. It's 20 years ago, virtually to the day. First round of the 2000 Championship. David Gray against Ronnie O'Sullivan, who was coming in in great form. He just won the Scottish Open. He beat Mark Williams 9-1 in the final and he'd made a 1-4-7 in an earlier round of that tournament. Uh, so coming in on a real high, he'd won another ranking event earlier in the season as well. 
And then, of course, Stephen Hendry got beaten on the opening day of the championship. So that opened the path even more for O'Sullivan. And it seems bizarre to think now when you consider he was only 24. He'd been around a while and there was almost a sense that he needed to get a move on if he was going to get the sort of level of world title success that people expected of him. So Gray really wasn't expected to do much. He was in the early stages of his career. He hadn't made an enormous impact yet at all. O'Sullivan, duly, got off to a great start, had three centuries in a row, then a break of 96 after that, and that put him 5-1 up. But Gray got back in, hung in, only 5-4 down overnight, and it was a fantastic session the next day. O'Sullivan had another couple of centuries, so that was five in total in the match. Even now, that would be outstanding, but then it was just incredible for anyone to make five centuries in the best of 19 match. It was such a rare thing. So Sullivan goes on to lead by nine frames to seven, and you think he's weathered the storm here. Gray has clung on well. It'll be good experience for him, but O'Sullivan is going to go through to the next round to play Dominic Dale, as it turned out. Wasn't what happened at all. O'Sullivan just could not get over the line, and the last three frames were all close. It wasn't as if Gray started making big breaks because he didn't do that at all. But Gray actually showed a lot more composure than O'Sullivan. He didn't seem phased at all by the enormity of what he was about to achieve, whereas O'Sullivan did seem to struggle to get over the line. Gray won those three close frames and, and went through, and it was just a magnificent match, just twists and turns all the way. The result was just on, on a knife edge. All the way through, even at 9-7, when it looked like O'Sullivan was on the brink of winning, he didn't entirely write off Gray because he'd come back so many times in that match. I remember a few days later, actually, after he had lost 13-1 to Dominic Dale in the second round. Two things I remember. He was in the bar in the Novotel later that night. I've never seen anyone so disconsolate. He just couldn't understand how he had gone from the highlight of his career to playing so badly in the space of a few days. And the other thing, Clive actually picked up on that point in one of his BBC radio reports, and he used some grandiose line like Clive does about how Gray was left to reflect on the transient nature of glory as uh, he followed his win over O'Sullivan with defeat to Dale. And I think one of the tabloid lads said, what on earth does that mean? And he piped <laughs> up with, it means he lost this time. And uh, he certainly had, but he had left his mark on the championship and he went on to do well at the Crucible again and he got to a UK final and he won a ranking title. And look, it didn't turn out too badly for O'Sullivan either because 12 months later, he came back to Sheffield and won the World Championship. But I always remember that match from, it was it was a really good championship that actually in 2000, ended up with a memorable final between Mark Williams and Matthew Stevens. And uh, that was one of the first highlights of it on, uh, I think it was day three that Gray knocked out one of the favourites for the title. Yeah, great choice. Um, I'm going to move straight on to mine. I've, I've actually picked one match from the 80s, one from the 90s and one from the 2000s. So... The first match, it's another first-round match. It's another decider, 1984, Neil Foles against Alex Higgins. Uh, this was just before I started watching snooker. Um, and all I've seen of it is Neil being interviewed by David Icke, who, of course, his career took a slightly mm. different turn years later. Um, it's interesting. It was Neil's first appearance at the Crucible. Now, he was from a snooker family. Of course, his father was a professional, and he would have gone to the Crucible to watch. But the intimidation factor, firstly, of making your Crucible debut, at around that time where snooker had become absolutely massive on TV, you know, walking into the lion's den, but playing Alex Higgins, who was the crowd favourite and just an intimidating character anyway, how he must have felt. And, you know, to win that match, um, incredible, really. He had every reason to get basically battered in that match. But... He was only, I think, Neil was only 20 at the time. It was all kind of new to him. And because I've become good friends with Neil in recent years, I'd just love to see it. I'd love to watch that match and see how it went. I think it, had I watched it at the time, I, because I was sort of young and impressionable, I probably would have supported Higgins. There was something fascinating about him. I was never a massive 
fan of his, but I would always watch him because he was watchable. There's always, yeah. a, sen- there's always a sense that something would happen. As the years have gone on, I've become less of a fan of him, to be perfectly honest. C- certainly after I, had a, after I had a few dealings with him. Um, that's Alex, by the way, not Neil. <laughs> but, Neil as well, a bit. Yeah, yeah, but actually, it just sounds like a, a classic matchup between you know a, a new kid on the block and one of the already one of the legends. And I think I'd like to hear as well the different levels of support they got because. It's true Alex Higgins was the people's champion, but the Crucible crowd always love an underdog. And I, I suspect Neil would have had a fair bit of support as well. Yeah, he got the tough draws in those days, didn't he? Because the following year he was back there and played Steve Davis in the first round and uh, pushed him hard. I think it was 10-8 in the end that Steve won that one. But yeah, I mean, that would be a great one to see. And, you know, Neil was one of the first of those players to come through, guys of that age, of that generation who came along to establish, to uh, to challenge the established order like Higgins. And as you say, Higgins was such an enormous star. I think he'd been runner-up in Sports Personality of the Year in 82. So that's how prominent he was. So for him to play his first round match in the World Championship was a massive sporting mm. occasion, really. It transcended snooker. Um, and fair play to Neil to go out there and just keep his composure and manage to, to get the results in those daunting circumstances, as you alluded to. Yeah, they showed uh, one of the Crystal Classics. They showed the 82 final, uh, Higgins against Ray Reardon. And you just couldn't take your eyes off Alex Higgins. It was just, even when he wasn't playing, he was always twitching. And there was just a sense always of something was going to happen. But of course, on, on that day, he won the World Championship. OK, so that we're two down, four to go. You're, you're the next choice. Yeah, this is the other one I flagged up last week. A quarter final from 1987, Joe Johnson against Stephen Hendry. Now, Joe obviously had very surprisingly won the championship. He'd had a poor season, really, as defending champion, but he got through the first couple of rounds. And now he was playing Hendry, who'd perhaps had a better season than him. And he got through the first couple of rounds as well. And Hendry hadn't won a ranking title by then. He hadn't even been in a final of one yet. But the amazing thing is, and this is my recollection of it, he was already so obviously so good that people were actually talking about him as a potential winner of the championship that year at the age of 18 and it's certainly also my memory of it that he was I think roundly expected to beat Joe Johnson wasn't how it turned out at all Johnson goes 7-1 up after the first session comes back that night wins the first frame so it's 8-1 and from there a little bit of a comeback but still 9-3 it's looking very good for Johnson and you're even thinking he might come out and uh, win the last four frames of the night and get through with a session to spare Instead of which, Henry then wins the next three, back to 9-6. So obviously the last frame of the night is absolutely massive. It goes to a respot. Joe pots the respot, but goes in off. So instead of 10-6, it's only 9-7 overnight. Put it behind him very well. They were straight back out the next morning for the final session. Johnson goes 12-8 up. So you think, OK, he's weathered the storm here. But again, Henry comes back at him, gets back to 12-all. And then Joe in the last frame... Uh, made a good break early on and sought out from there to go through 13-12. And as we know, he went on to beat Neil Foles, actually, and get to the final. I've tried to find this match on YouTube, actually, and all I can find is the penultimate frame. And you should have a look at it because it only takes less than five minutes because Henry's so quick. He's so fearless. He wins it in one visit. And it was just an early taste of what we were to see at Henry from Henry so often at the Crucible and other venues over the years. All out attacking snooker, going down fighting if he's going down at all. And basically, if you watch those few minutes, you're seeing Henry in the early stages of effectively reinventing the game. It's a wonderful watch, and it was a fantastic match in what wasn't really a great championship, actually, in 87. Uh, But great result from Johnson because it was pitched, I think, as the young man against the older generation. Now, Henry, obviously, as I said, was 18, but Joe was 34. You know, it wasn't exactly over the hill by any means. Uh, But he did well to pull it off because I think people expected that Henry might end his, his reign as champion. And uh, no matter how many times Henry came back at him, 
Johnson just managed to get over the line. And I'm sure that stands out as one of the great results of his career. Well, I'll say two things about that match. The first, of course, the 987 Championship, they had that blue set, didn't they? Which, right, uh, yeah. I think was because it was 60 years of the yeah. World Championship, or maybe a sponsor's thing. Anyway, that's by the by. The other thing I would say is Stephen Hendry uh, started playing snooker when he had a table. He never played before. He got a six-foot table Christmas 1982, I think, or 1981. 81, I think it was. 81. Yeah. So yeah. We're, only, we're only five years after that we're talking about this match. I mean, it's incredible. When people talk about the great natural talents – they never mention Hendry, but he had an extraordinary eye for snooker. And as you say, the speed and just that kind of, you could see in him that stubborn determination, I'm going to be the best player. I already kind of think I am, and I'm going to prove it. You could see it in him even as a teenager. Yeah, he, he never tempered his attacking instincts that much, you know. People say that soon after that, around the time he won the Grand Prix, he really started to curb his attacking instincts. And he did, but only very marginally. And he never really changed after that right to the end of his career. And people said to him that if you just curbed your attacking instincts a bit, maybe you could be a bit more like Steve Davis and have a longer career. But he wasn't interested. He didn't want to play that way. And he said anyway that he didn't know how to play the other way. And if he had reined it in a bit, he wouldn't have been like Steve. He wouldn't have gone on for years achieving those results uh, that, that, that Steve did to such a late age. And I'm inclined to agree with him, actually. But it, you should really have a look at those few minutes. He just looks so young, and so blonde and just <laughs> and so thin as well, actually. Um, but uh, it, it's just fantastic to see just an early glimpse of a player who was going to come along and change the game and, and become. And I know this is a less popular view now, but still, in my mind, the greatest player there's ever been. Okay, well, that's a, that's that is literally an argument for another day. In fact, we've already done it, me and Neil. But anyway, yeah. um, no, I mean, people do say that, and I'm not I'm not going to start that that argument now, even though I don't agree with it. Um, my next match, and I've chosen this because, well, for two reasons actually. One, because it exemplifies one of the reasons we love the World Championship, and that's when it becomes a right old twitch up. And the second is because there's no footage of it because it went on so late that they actually. The cameraman went home. Um, it's from 1994. It's the first round. It's Nigel Bond against Cliff Thorburn. Now, this match has become known for the fact that Thorburn was 9-2 up. Bond won 10-9. Cliff was past his best by this point. He hadn't played at the Crucible in four years. He had to qualify. But he came along and started playing really well. He was 5-2 up. They came off early after the first session. That's maybe not a huge shot. He had a 1-3-9 break in the, in the next session. You know, he was playing vintage stuff. Went 9-2 up. Couldn't quite close it out. Bond's come back to 9-7, but this is the key thing that never gets mentioned. They were then taken off. So then he had a few hours. And 9-7 is no sort of lead. 9-2 is different, but 9-7, having to sweat for a few hours, thinking I should have already won. You can just imagine the tension uh, of coming back hours later in that sort of midnight shift when you've got the whole arena to yourself. But as I say, because it was so late, they, you know, unions and so on, they didn't actually film it, so there's no footage of it. So I actually can't watch it again, but I'd love to have seen just the twitching going on. I mean, Cliff was not a bottler. That's one thing you've got to say about him. He was a very, very tough player. One thing about it, though, is had he had won, had Cliff had yeah. won, he would have played Terry Griffiths yes. in the second round. Now, bearing in mind... In 1983, 11 years earlier, they fought out the latest ever finish, 3.51 a.m., when they were at their peaks. Can you imagine, because they were both by 94 past their best, can you imagine how late it would have finished had they played each other again? They'd still be playing. They'd still be playing. <laughs> but it's, it's funny you mention that match, because I don't think there's any footage of the finish of that match in 83 either, mm. uh, for, for, for the very same reason. I think also Cliff made a point afterwards, which I was astonished to hear a player make. It's the sort of point that the likes of us make. He said that was the only time he had ever lost on that table. He said wow. every match he'd ever lost at the Crucible before was on the other table or obviously in the one table setup. 
So he said that was the only time he'd ever lost. I think it was on table one, and he said mm. that was the only match he ever lost on that side of the arena. Wow, that is that's, that's not even in the almanac. That's how, that's how, how deep that is. It's a stat. Okay, well, uh, your final choice. So we're going back 17 years now to a quarter final, mm. and whenever people talk about Ken Doherty's run to the final in 2003. They obviously talk about the semi-final against Paul Hunter, and rightly so. It was an amazing match. What often isn't mentioned is the remarkable adventures he had to get to that semi-final. First round, cleared up to beat Sean Murphy 10-9 on the black. Second round, 7-2 down against Graham Dot. Comes back to win 13-12. An absolute epic, just dripping with tension throughout. So then he's in the quarter-final against John Higgins, and you're starting to think maybe he's got a chance here. And in fact, earlier in the season, they met in the quarter-finals of the UK, and Doherty was 5-1 up. Higgins got back to 5-all before Doherty pulled away again. But I remember watching this quarter-final of the, the World Championship in the Crucible press room with Phil Yates. Now, Phil and I were basically doing the whole Irish media between us at that time, or most of it. Phil was working for the Irish Independent. He was filing for RTE as well. I was filing for the other Irish national broadcaster, as well as the Irish Times. I have a vested interest in Ken anyway, uh, being an Irishman, and we were, we were even playing in the same club at the time. And I remember when I got to 5-0, Ken, uh, Phil and I did a high five and then when it went six nil we did a high five and added a finger from the other hand and as the frames were going by we thought we're going to run out of fingers here we might have to use another part of the anatomy and that's not a prospect anyone wants to uh, to contemplate but sure enough by the end of the morning eight nil and nobody could believe that a player of John Higgins class was that far behind we expected a comeback but it didn't come straight away at all uh, they resumed that evening nine nil ten nil now, at the start of the match, if you'd been mad enough to think that Ken was going to win 13-0, you could have got 2,000 to 1. And I remember checking this with Balthazar Fabricius, mm. Ladbrokes of the on-site bookmakers. I mean, what a fantastic name. Balthazar was a great guy, and he was keeping me updated, actually, on all this. He, he went and looked up what it would have been at the start of the match. When it went 10-0, he told me that the odds were now down to 3-1 to one on John Higgins losing 13-0. Just think of that. Finally, then, some relief for Higgins. He actually almost made a maximum in the next frame. He missed the 15th black. Then he gets the next one as well, 10-2. You're still thinking, Dorothy might even finish this off tonight. But back he comes, 10-3, 10-4, 10-5. Last frame of the night goes to the black. Higgins wins it, and suddenly it's 10-6, and it's the most fragile 10-6 lead we've ever seen at the Crucible. And then I went into the arena for the final session the next afternoon. Higgins wins the first frame of the afternoon to get back to 10-7. You can imagine what's going on in Ken's head at this stage, thinking that, you know, he might lose. He might end up losing 13-10 the way it was going at this stage, and he was way behind in the next frame. It looked like it was going 10-8. Doherty pulled out this amazing clearance of 63 to win it on the black. How he managed to do that in the circumstances, when his head must have been scrambled all over the place, and that really settled him. That was so much the turning point of the whole match. That made it 11-7, and from there he saw it out to win 13-8. But a fantastic afternoon um, for, for Ken just to uh, to sort of hold off that fight back from Higgins. And he admitted afterwards, he was very open about it. He said, what would I have done? How would I ever have got over it if I'd lost from 10-0 up? He said it would have been gone down as the biggest collapse since Wall Street in the 1920s. And then, of course, he went on from there to beat Hunter. And then that great final he had against Mark Williams where he was 10-2 uh, down, got back to 11-all, and just couldn't get in front and ended up losing 18-16. But I just think, I mean, that run that Doherty had that year, I think every single match of it could be part could be part of a Crucible Classic series. And that one uh, was one that certainly stood out for me. But, you know, just to have been there on the day that John Higgins found himself 10-0 down in the Crucible, it was really quite something. 
Yeah, I remember seeing him when he was 8-0 down and he was waiting, I think, for a courtesy car or something outside the cruise wall. And he did look shell-shocked, Higgins. But, of course, this is the genius of the World Championship and the longer matches and the sessions and the fact that matches are played over days. Because if you just said to Ken before play began, after 17 frames, Ken, you're going to be leading John Higgins 10-7, he would have been delighted. But it's the fact that he was 10-0 up. That was the problem. And then suddenly Higgins is coming back. Like you say, in your mind, you're only human. Uh, to have those thoughts of what happens if I lose. To me as well, I would say this, people often talk about what was the best world championship. I think 2003 is right up there. It was a fantastic yeah. tournament. We ended up with a great final. He just failed to pull it off against Mark Williams in terms of coming back. But it was a terrific event, that 2003 tournament. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the, the other events from around that era, it was a great run actually around that time because 2005 I thought was a really good one. 2006, people always talk that one down, but I thought there was a lot of really good stuff there. And, I think the final, particularly the last couple of frames, was far, far better than people actually make it out to have been. But I totally agree, 2003, it was a great time for the game, actually, and Mark Williams having his sort of second coming. O'Sullivan had already won a world title by then. Hendry was still a very good player, and he still had the likes of White and Davis and, to a lesser extent, Paris knocking around. So great time for the game, that, although I seem to remember that was one of the worst periods uh, in the game's history in terms of the uh, off-table politics that were going on that uh, thankfully we managed to uh, get through a few years later. Just before I carry on, because Ken's mentioning this, I, I had a couple of tweets about matches and Donald, who I think he's Irish, he said, um, I'd love to watch Ken's match again against Alex Higgins in the first round in 94, because that was, that was Higgins, that was the... Thorburn year as well against Bond. That was Higgins' last appearance. He managed to he put up a good fight actually, but uh, and also nearly had a fight with John Williams, the referee, who uh, put him in his place. And also uh, Kelly Barker, who's a huge Snooker fan. Yeah, she'd, she'd be there now with Chris Downer, season ticket holders, if it was on. She's mentioned actually a match someone else mentioned earlier, Alex Higgins, Terry Griffiths, 1979. What bits there are on YouTube are brilliant. It's a match I'd love to see more of. Of course, that was the year that Terry won the title. Okay, so my final choice, as I said, is from the 2000s. It is actually 2006, which you just mentioned. It's the quarterfinals. It's Graham Dot against Neil mm. Robertson. Now, we all remember, well, it, it, people who remember it, remember Graham Dot's final against Peter Ebden. Of course, the semi-final against Ronnie O'Sullivan, where he completely cracked O'Sullivan's resolve. But he very nearly didn't make it through. What I would say about these two players is this. Clearly, Neil Robertson has had the better career. You look at the record, he's had an incredible career. Um, one, of the, one of the great players, certainly the best non-British player there's ever been. Yeah. But in terms of their crucible careers, you could argue Graham Dots had the better run of it. He's been in three world finals. Obviously, Neil Robertson so far has been in one. He beat Dot, of course, to win the title in 2010. Uh, it seems to me the world championship is made for Dot, the longer matches, but also his temperament so often coming to the fore there. Terrific battler, terrific player, full stop. And, of course, when he won the title, because a lot of it was quite slow moving. He got this reputation for being, you know, a dour player. Not a bit of it. He's a great player to watch, as he proved again, actually, when they played in that World Grand Prix final earlier yeah. this season. But here's the thing, and one of the reasons I'd like to see it again, and you you probably will remember, I can't quite remember what happened. I'm sure it revolved around a yellow in the decider. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Now, in my mind, it's one of two things. Either Neil took it on when he should have played a snooker, or he played a snooker when he should have took it on. I can't quite remember which was which. Yeah, I've got to be honest. I don't entirely remember myself either. But I, I was I was in the um, in the arena for that, and it was one of those great situations where play had long since finished on the other table, so the wall was up. So you you had a one table setting before the one table stage, if you know what I mean. And of course, Dot had been ten uh, six up going into that last session. Mm. Uh, in fact, he'd been ten five up because Robertson uh, won the last frame the, the night before. And then, obviously, we found ourselves in that decider. I, I, well, it was 12-8 as well. It was 12-8 as well. So, Neil's won four That's in a right, row. Yeah. 
He's won four in a row to get back to it. And I had a vested interest because I had actually backed Robertson to win the championship that year, which he didn't do, although he did deliver for me because I did back him again in 2010. But that's another story. Um, there, there was a safety shot in the yellow, and I think there was a miss called. And then Robertson, I seem to remember, played some made a very strange shot selection mm. um, on the yellow. So a bit like you, I don't remember exactly what it was. And then he said afterwards that, he thought if the balls got put back, they might not be put back in the right way. I, but certainly he made a, a decision on the yellow when it came down to a safety duel that uh, a lot of us questioned. And I think that ultimately cost him the match. And I mean, on such moments do entire careers turn because Robertson was playing so well, he might well have gone on to win it that year. Would have been a big surprise if he had won it then because he was only just coming into the top 16. And Dot, of course, as we know, did go on to win. And you know, probably would never have, have had a chance like that again if he hadn't been world champion that year. But one of those occasions, we talked about this, didn't we, in one of the previous podcasts, it's almost more dramatic to have that one table going and mm-hmm. the other one sitting idle than when it's one table out in the middle. And uh, when I think of the most remarkable tension that I've experienced in the Crucible arena, that that for me really stands out. I remember uh, sitting in there watching that decider. But yeah, great match and a much underrated championship, you know, and you think of the first round match between Henry and Bond and all the drama of the Reesport. So yeah, that was a really good year, that. Yeah, and I think it's strange to say this about Neil Robertson, who I, you know, regard very highly as a player and as a person, but it's like he's a bit of a Crucible nearly man. Now, it's strange to say that because he's won it, <laughs> which which most players have never done, but, you know, he's never been in another final. I think he's been in two of the semi-finals, of course, lost that one to Selby, which is part of this Crucible Classic series. Um, went there last year playing fantastically well played fantastically well for two rounds and I think his only sort of playing weakness sometimes is that he gets a bit sucked in if he's playing a tactical player because he can play that game and he did get sucked in with John Higgins it wasn't the best match but Higgins kind of mastered it and when sort of Robertson tried to get out of that mode his rhythm had gone Um, he was looking good to win last year he was the best player for the first week of the tournament now of course he's by far from done yet he's you know second in the world rankings and you know whenever this tournament is played he'll be one of the favourites but if he ends his career with just one world title you feel considering how good he is and how well he's done in other events you know that wouldn't be enough really considering his ability Imagine how long the lockdown would have to go on for us to get so niche that we would discuss which of the one-time world champions <laughs> was the most surprising not to win it again. But listen, give it a few months. It may yeah. come to that. He'd certainly be in there. And he's mentioned that himself, actually. I know John Higgins used to talk about it, actually, uh, because he took him so long to win. It would have been even more surprising if John had only won one. But it took him nine years to win it again. He didn't win it again until 2007. And Neil has spoken openly about it as well. He was relatively young when he won it for the first time 10 years ago. He's still got a few years left, and I think you would say, obviously no guarantees whatsoever, but you would marginally say, more likely than not, I would fancy he'll get another one uh, before his career ends. I hope so. I think that'd be great. Anyway, so there are our choices. Now, obviously, you know, they're just personal choices. Let us know uh, uh, what you think of those. Let us know anything else we've talked about. The snooker, we heard from Snooker in Italy. If you live in another country, tell us about snooker there. The, the email about the, the whole WST relaunch and all that stuff as well. You can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail.com snookerscenepodcast at mail.com we do read all the emails and thank you for uh, getting in touch we'd like to you know and ask us anything you like as well ask us any questions you like you know we've got potentially months yet to, <laughs> to, to talk about this stuff we're sort of I think probably focus on world championship stuff for the moment because of course it should be on at the moment and, and there's no getting away from that we should be in Sheffield or watching it certainly um, but we're not and we're just trying to do our best to keep uh, people uh, relatively entertained so uh, 
So that's it then, Michael. So and uh, I w- good wishes to you as well and your family because there's a, a big event coming up. Yeah, yeah. Second child being born hopefully in the next few days, a brother or sister for Matthew. So, uh, yeah, exciting times and um, we'll see how it all plays out. Absolutely. Well, best wishes for that. And uh, we will be back in some form next week. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.